Over the Fence Podcast, we are back and we are discussing another playoff baseball classic. And this is a game that is um, another one like the last one that we did that is not talked about that often among great games. And it it's a pretty good game. It's an interesting game. And it's a game that has a um, connotation for me personally. Um, so, you know, full disclosure, as I have discussed on, on past episodes, I am a Mets fan and I was of age when this game happened. This is um, we're doing game one of the 1988 National League Championship Series between the Mets and the Dodgers. And I'll talk about my memories of this game in a minute. Um, but just talking about this game, this is an interesting game. Um, this series is more known for another game. Later on, which was sort of the turning point of that series and a certain moment that was a turning point of that series. And obviously this season and this Dodger team is much more well known for a much larger moment that happened in the World Series with Kirk Gibson. But this was the beginning of the postseason for both teams. Of course, in those days, there was no division series. So you went straight to the league championship series. You had the two division winners. You had four divisions. And um, you had two divisions in each league. And the division winners made the playoffs and everybody else went home. And that's just how it was then. Not saying that was better. Um, you know, I like the way the playoffs are now, personally. And, um, you know, I like the fact that more teams are in it. But this is a day when um, you had teams like this Met team. This Met team won 100 games. Um, this team was a team that was a very good team that did not have as good a season as maybe they could have had, but still a pretty good season. I mean, they won 100 games. They were 160 um, two of their games were rained out and never made up. In those days, they didn't stress to make all the games up if they didn't absolutely have to. Nowadays, it's very important to the league that they make all the games up. So the Mets only played 160 games that year, and they won 100 of them. They finished 15 games ahead of Pittsburgh, but it was actually a lot closer, that division race, than it would than that would indicate. Uh, Pir- the Pirates were right there with the Mets for a time during the summer, from what I can remember. Um there was a time during that season that the Mets kind of plotted through about two months of that season. They played about 500 ball right in the middle of that summer. And there was really not too many players playing well. I mean, Daryl Strawberry was hitting pretty well. But other than that, um, Keith Hernandez was hurt. Um, Gary Carter wasn't playing well. And, you know, he was struggling to get his 300th home run. And um, the, the Mets just weren't playing that well for a little while. And Pittsburgh was right there. And then the Mets kind of took off at the end of that summer and going into September and they ended up finishing 15 games ahead of Pittsburgh. But really, the race was closer than that margin would indicate. The Dodgers, in the meantime, finished 94-67 and 67 that year in 1988. They were seven games ahead of Cincinnati. And um, they were picked by many to finish four and fifth, fourth or fifth that year. But they got a huge spark because that was their year that they got Kirk Gibson. Kirk Gibson had come over as a free agent from the Tigers. Um, there was a whole thing about his contract with the Tigers, and um, there was a something about collusion that his contract had ended and um, going through free agency. He did not get any offers and they found out, you know, those of you who know about this, you know, and those who don't, you can look it up. There was a collusion scandal that apparently in the late eighties, the owners kind of got together and decided um, just don't sign guys, you know, don't, don't offer players money so we can get these salaries to start coming down. And once they were found out, um, you know, there was a punishment there and, 
Kirk Gibson ended up getting his free agency and ended up signing with the Dodgers. So there's there's more to that story that I don't really, you know, that wasn't really the point of this podcast, so I didn't do a whole lot of research on that. But he ended up on the Dodgers. So this is his first year there. And many of you know what ended up happening with him later on in the World Series with them in that big moment. Um, this was also the big year of Oral Hershiser with the Dodgers. He had a 59-game 59 inning scoreless streak. He was 23 and 8 with a 2.26 ERA. Um, the 59 games broke Don Drysdale's record, which was 58 games. So 59 games scoreless, and it would have gone longer, but the season ended. But he got that 59 games in, and then the season ended. Now here we are in the playoffs, and he's still on that scoreless streak. But of course, in the playoffs, it doesn't count. So a little background on the two franchises before we start. The Dodgers have been around since 1884. They were known as the Brooklyn Atlantics. They were then known as the Grays, the Bridegrooms, the Grooms, the Superbaz, the Robins, and finally the Brooklyn Dodgers. They left Brooklyn for L.A. after the 1959 season. At that point, they won. Um, at this point, actually, in 1988, they had won five World Series, four of them in L.A. They only won one in Brooklyn in 1955. They won four in L.A., most recently in 1981 over the Yankees. The Mets, meanwhile, were an expansion team that came around in 1962, partially as a replacement for the Dodgers and the Giants who had left in um, after the 1957 season. So um, in 1962, the major leagues expanded for the first time in 50 years. That included the Mets and the Houston Colt 45s, who became the Houston Astros, who were in the National League at the time. Uh, at this point in 1988, the Mets had won two World Series. One was in 1969. The other was just two years earlier than this in 1986. So this was a Met team that was hot. This was a Met team that had been good for a while. Um, they were perennial contenders. They had won first or they had been finished first or second every year for the last five years, including this year um, that we were that in 1988. So 84 through 88, they finished either first or second every year during that time. The Dodgers, meanwhile, in recent history at this point, were sort of up and down. They'd won two division crowns in 1983 and 1985. But they lost the World Series in both those years. And all the years other than those years, 83 and 85, they were below 500. So they were kind of good and bad, good and bad, good and bad, up and down since that World Series championship in 1981. During that season in 1988, the Mets had won 11 out of 12 games against the Dodgers. So a lot of people looked at this series almost like um, almost like a... Not, I don't want to say a mismatch, but the Mets were heavy favorites going in. They won 100 games. They had a pretty solid team. They'd won the World Series two years earlier. Not that that really matters at this point, but, you know, they still had a lot of those players still there. And the Dodgers were a team that, like I said, people were picking them to finish fourth or fifth. They got that shot in the arm with Kirk Gibson there. They got um, a huge year from Oral Hershiser, and they won the division. But a lot of people were looking at this thinking that the Mets were just going to kind of, you know, go in and, and take care of business. They won 11 out of 12 out of them during the season. So my personal story with this um, this game, this was October 4th, 1988. I was 10 years old, almost 11. And I remember this game. It had a 5.30 local start, which means it started 8.30 on the East Coast where I am. And so I remember watching the first couple of innings, and then I had to go to bed because I was 10. And um, I couldn't stay up much later than the second inning of this game. So I remember seeing a little bit of it. I remember a little of the commentary with Al Michaels and Jim Palmer and Tim McCarver. And then I had to go to sleep. So here I was, um, you know, just this kid hoping the Mets were going to win their second title in three years. And um, we were going into it. The game starts... Um, like I said, 5.30 local time. So it's twilight. It's October 4th. The sun's going to be setting soon, but it's not quite near setting yet. But it's it's evening. 
And the setting for this game is just beautiful. I mean, if, if there's anything, if there's any way to describe just a perfect baseball evening, afternoon, I'm talking California sunshine. I'm talking, it looked like it was really nice weather. They said the temperature was in the 70s. Um, you hear the organ music. I mean, this was a time when you still had organ music in ballparks. And when, when the games, you know, when you're watching the early parts of the game, they're introducing the players. And then you see Oral Hershiser warming up. Um, you hear that organ music. It just feels like real baseball. It's just good. And this is like the New York team coming into this beautiful, sunny paradise and visiting this California team to play. It's just, it's beautiful baseball. It's really nice. Um, so the Mets are wearing their road grays. You know, I'm a uniform fanatic, so I'm just going to spend a quick minute on this. I won't go too long. Mets are wearing their road grays with the blue caps, blue bills, and the orange NY on the front. They had New York in block letters across the chest, across the chest, all capital blue block letters outlined in orange. And um, this was an interesting thing for that, that um, blue and orange, it was basically blue with orange on the outsides, Racing piping going straight down the sides of the uniform, along the shoulders, along the side, along the leg of the uniform. And that's basically their look of the late 80s going into the early 90s. And um, pullover, they were pullover jerseys. And so, yeah, the New York, which was kind of, you know, straight laced, but everything else about it was kind of loud, still holding on to some of the personality of the early 80s uniforms before uniforms kind of went to more of a traditional way going into the 90s. The Dodgers, of course, have the uniform that they've had forever. Um, plain white, blue caps, blue bills, interlocking, interlocking LA on the front, Dodgers in script across the chest, and red letters on the lower right of the stomach. And it's the uniform they still wear now. It's the uniform that they'll wear forever and they should wear forever. It's iconic. It's classic. It's great. And, um, and they look great in it. And it's a good looking. And the blue of the dot, the Dodger blue isn't quite the same as the Met blue at this point. I think the Met blue nowadays is a little bit darker. It's a little more blue. But that Dodger blue is more of a distinct, you know, not it's not navy, but more of a distinct blue. And the Met blue has a little more of a it's a little lighter in those days. So it's not exactly the same thing. But it's interesting seeing these two teams. The Mets wear blue and orange. Some people say they wear blue and orange because the blue is from the Dodgers and the orange is from the Giants. Some people say they wear blue and orange because it's the color of the New York City flag. I'm not really sure what's the true story, but we're going to get into this. So this is a good one. Oral Hershiser is on the mound for the Dodgers. Doc Gooden is on the mound for the Mets. And this is just a clinic of pitching. So we're just going to get right into it. So the game starts out. It's game one. The Mets are on the road, so they lead off. Top of the first, and Mookie Wilson's up. So Mookie Wilson's leading off. He's basically won the center field job away from Len Dykstra. Len Dykstra and Mookie were platooning for a couple of years, and Mookie ends up taking the job away from Lenny at this point in the 1988 season. Um, sometime during the season, they basically kind of started giving Mookie a lot more of the playing time and playing Lenny more off the bench. So Mookie comes up, and right away he lines one directly to Mike Marshall in right field. So that's one out. Mookie chases a lot of pitches early, it seems like, in this game. Um, Greg Jeffries is up next. Now, Greg Jeffries, at 21 years old, was the youngest player ever in the league championship series, which was hard to believe. I was really surprised, but that's what they announced during the course of this game, um, that he was actually the youngest player ever to play in the league championship series at this, at this point, at 21 years old. And he was part of that shot in the arm that the Mets got. He came up from the minor leagues, and um, he had a really big um, August 
you know, late August going into September. And then after a time, the league started to catch up to him. But he was kind of a, a shot in the arm for the Mets at this point. He was a prospect for them. And um, he was somebody who they were looking to as part of their future. So he comes up and he gets a single right away. So the first two Mets hit the ball pretty hard. Mookie lines out. And then Greg Jeffries gets this single to right field. And so now he's on first base with one out. Keith Hernandez is up next. He's the heart and soul of this team. He's the veteran. He's the first baseman. And he'd been hurt for a part of the season. He'd hurt his hamstring. He missed some time. And that, like I said, was part of that time that the Mets weren't playing that well in the middle of that summer. That's also something I remember pretty well watching this team during the course of that hot summer of 1988. And they just weren't playing that well. But they managed to stay in first place. And um, as we said, they took off. So the question is now, Hernandez is at first. Hernandez is up at bat. I'm sorry. And Greg Jeffries at first, are they going to try the hit and run? Hernandez doesn't run that well. Um, Hernandez fouls two off. Then they start, you know, there are a few pickoff throws over to first base to try to get Jeffries. He gets back. And um, Tim McCarver is the analyst of this game. So um, as I mentioned, the team is Tim McCarver as the analyst and um, uh, Jim Palmer. Sorry, (laughs) Jim Palmer is the other analyst. And um, Jim Palmer's recently retired at this point, the great pitcher for the Orioles. And the play-by-play is Al Michaels. So this is a dream team. This is a really great announcing team. And Jim McCarver, Tim McCarver is really at his best here. He was also an announcer for the Mets during the regular season, regularly on the Mets. Um, so he knew the team very well. And that helped a lot. And he just was a great analyst. And he gives a pretty good um, analysis here regarding this um, situation with whether the Mets are going to hit and run. Phil, running situation again. See, he almost took off too early. When the counts three and two are in hit-and-run situations, you don't want to get picked off. Often the first-base coach will tell you that, and I think Bill Robinson just reminded Greg of that. It's up to the hitter to put the ball in play. It's not your responsibility to steal the base. So that's what was going on. Um, They almost picked off Jeffries because he's leaning, and he's almost like he's going to steal. And the first-base coach for the Mets... Bill Robinson has to kind of remind him, hey, wait for him to hit the ball first. I mean, yeah, it's hit and run, but it's up to him to put the ball in play. So um, not so much wait, wait for him to hit the ball first, then it wouldn't be hit and run. But remember that it's his responsibility. You're not stealing here. You're setting things up so that he can hit. So um, it's not all about the jump jump you're going to get. It's all about um, putting him in a position where once he hits it, you're already running. So um, that's the situation. The game kind of grinds to a, a slower pace as Her- um, Hershiser is throwing a first base a lot. But um, and a couple of times he fakes and everything like that. Eventually, Hernandez lines out to Steve Sachs at second base with Jeffries running. And so it's an easy double play. They throw Jeffries out at first. No way he's going to be able to get back in time. And that's the end of the first inning. So we go to the bottom of the first and we get to see Doc Gooden for the first time. So Mike Schmidt is a guest analyst on tape. And this is something really good. I don't think they do this anymore. I don't think Fox does this, but this is something cool that ABC was doing. This is ABC's broadcast. And they have Mike Schmidt as an sort of like a guy who gives you the breakdown of the pitchers. And um, he does this for some of the guys in the bullpen, I think, but he definitely does it for the starters. And he gives a good analysis for Gooden here. And um, he talks about him. And this is all recorded. And it's just point by point. And he just talks about, one among many of the things, the fact that Dwight Gooden does not hold runners on that well. Um, So interestingly, Al Michaels repeats that. And then the first batter was Steve Sachs, and he hits the second pitch the other way for a single to right field. And he's fast. So now it's going to be a question of can he hold him on. So the second batter is Franklin Stubbs. A couple throws to first base, and everybody in the booth is expecting Sachs to go. They're all expecting him to go. Another throw to first base and another one. One 
pulls um, one of the th- throws to first base. Sacks slides back into first and pulls the bag right out of the ground, diving in. So that's kind of weary. That's kind of um, strange. And it's clear that Gooden's wearing himself out, throwing over to first base, um, you know, throwing a lot of throws over there. So that's kind of grinding this game to a slower pace. But the game picks up because once, um, you know, after a while, the game starts to pick up from here. Sacks finally runs. He does steal. It's not even close. Um, Stubbs tries to bunt him on a 3-1 count, which is kind of, un- kind of unusual. It's 3-1, and one, and he tries to drop down a bunt. He bunts it foul, and eventually he strikes out. So Sacks is at first. I'm sorry, Sacks is at second, and there's one out, and Kirk Gibson's up. Now, they talk about Kirk Gibson. Um, Gibson grounds out pretty quickly to Wally Backman at second base. That moves Sacks over to third. So now Sacks is at third, but now there's two outs. But um, they talk about Gibson. Gibson at this point is already hurt. Now, this is something I don't remember from this point because I remember we all remember Kirk Gibson hitting the home run limping in game one of the World Series. But I had always thought that Kirk Gibson got hurt during this series. I thought he got hurt. Uh, I know there was a play later on in the series where he dives for a ball and that kind of messes him up and he's not in good shape. But apparently at this point, he was already not well. He was having knee problems. He was having hamstring problems. And Jim Palmer, one of the announcers, says that he talked to him um, before this game and that Gibson told him he doesn't even know what the problem is. He's like, I don't know if it's my knee or my hamstring or what, but I mean, I'm just having all kinds of problems with my legs. And um, he's already not doing well with the legs and everything like that. So he's already hurting. Mike Marshall's up next, two outs and a man on third. And um, he hits a liner that drops right in front of Daryl Strawberry in right field. That's enough to score Steve Sachs, and the Dodgers are up one nothing pretty quickly. And then John Shelby. Um, Mike, um, Dwight Gooden, by the way, that's only the second. Dwight Gooden only gave up two earned runs in 51 innings at Dodger Stadium in his whole career. So he's always pitch, pitched well at Dodger Stadium. He'd only given up two earned runs in 51 innings during the course of his career. But here's one in the playoffs, and it's one nothing Dodgers in the first. And John Shelby grounds out to Backman to end the inning. So we go to the top of the second. Mets are down one nothing. Dodgers are up one nothing. Daryl Strawberry, the LA native, he strides up to first place. First pace. First, <laughs> excuse me. He strides up to the plate. Got to get used to talking again, guys. I'm I'm with you. Um, Daryl Strawberry, he's the LA native, and he makes his uh, long, easy, leisurely stride up to the plate. Straw had a lot of swag back then. I kind of forgot how much swag he had. And Straw, he was he was really ripped. You know, he was you know the big arms and everything like that. He goes over to he steps up to the plate, and he's the Mets' big hitter. He swings at the first pitch and pops out to third base. We're gonna see more and talk more about Strawberry in a minute. Um, so that's one out. Kevin McReynolds strikes out swinging quickly, and um, as the announcers talk about the Dodger Stadium mound and how good a mound it is for pitching. And then Howard Johnson, who was a pretty good Met, but not as good that season in 1988, he lines out to right field. So it looks like Hershey's are settling in. So let's see how Gooden does in the top of the bottom of the second. Mike Sosha flies out to Mookie Wilson pretty quick. Jeff Hamilton, he's the third baseman. He flies out to Kevin McReynolds. And um, next is Alfredo Griffin. Now they show a highlight of Alfredo Griffin. He was hit on the hand by Dwight Gooden earlier in the season, back in May. And um, it broke a bone in his hand and he missed two months. Now, Dwight Gooden, for those of you who don't know, he threw very hard during the course of especially the early part of his career. I mean, he threw in the mid to upper 90s, which nowadays you got all these guys throwing 100. But in 1980, in the 1980s, a guy throwing in the mid to upper 90s, that's pretty hard. And um, it's pretty hard anytime, obviously. But I mean, you know, in those days, you didn't have as many guys like nowadays. You have Every team has like three or four guys who throw close to 100 miles an hour, it seems like. No matter how bad the team is, you have all these guys that throw so hard. But in those days, you didn't always have that. 
And Gooden threw pretty hard. So facing Gooden now, and he'd faced Gooden since coming back from his injury. Um, but facing Gooden here in the playoffs and, you know, having to come back for facing a guy who throws that hard and has already broken a bone in your hand, um, you know, probably not too easy. But Alfredo Griffin had to do it, and here he is, and he hits a liner that Howard Johnson has to leap to get. But he gets it, so the inning is over. So we got to go to the top of the third, still one nothing Dodgers. And Gary Carter leads off. He chops one to third base slowly, and Jeff Hamilton has no play. He just has to eat it, so Carter's on, one out. Wally Backman's up next. He lays down a bunt. He almost beats it out. Al Michaels says that clearly he's bunting for a base hit as well as a sacrifice. Um, he doesn't get the hit, but it's good enough for a sacrifice. So Carter's at second, now one out. Now Dwight Gooden's up. Now Dwight Gooden for a pitcher, he can hit. Um, and I do remember this. He was a, a decent hitting pitcher. He had a couple of homers in his career. Um, and, you know, he could hit for a pitcher. But he strikes out swinging, unfortunately, because Hershiser's on his game. We're going to talk more about that. Um, so now it's two outs and Gary Carter on second. And then Mookie Wilson lines a single. Mike Marshall makes a really strong throw from right field. And Carter, you know, can't run that well at this point. He's a catcher and he's older. So he can only get as far as third. He doesn't score. So now it's first and third, two outs. And Greg Jeffries, he already has a hit. Now he's up. In the regular season, Greg Jeffries hit 462 in his first 13 games. In his last 16 games, he hit only 193. So the pitchers started to adjust to him. And spoiler alert, from what I remember with um, being a Mets fan in 1989, the following season, he didn't have a good year that year either. He never really caught on as the prospect the Mets were hoping him to become. He had a couple of decent years in his career later when he was with other teams, but with the Mets, it didn't really pan out. Spoiler alert. Sorry. So um, he hits one right back to Hershiser, who throws the first base, and the inning's over. So the Mets leave to Hershiser's scoreless streak continues. Um, it doesn't count for the regular season, but it does count. Um, well, you know, anything he can do here counts. And this is just a nice little Dodger Stadium moment. I just wanted to play that moment because I kind of like the little the fact that the inning ends and you hear that organ music and everything like that. I kind of that's something that I wish they still you still got every once in a while at the ballparks nowadays. I love the fact that now you go to the ballpark and you hear all the you know the songs, the pop songs, the songs everybody likes. The players have their walk up music. I have no problem with that, but I do kind of like something. There's a charm with these older games that you hear that that organ and everything like that. The last out comes up and instead of hearing a pop song, you hear that organ music and everything, and you hear the crowd cheering. I don't know how well it came through with the audio. The audio on this video is not that great. It's not that bad. It's not as bad as my last, the one that I did last episode, but it's not great, but hopefully it came out, came across pretty clear. Um, I just thought it was a nice moment at an old ballpark that is still there, still standing. So Oral Hershiser leads off the bottom of the third. Gooden falls behind him three and one, then gets him to three and two. Then he ends up walking him. So Gooden walks the first, walks the pitcher as the leadoff batter in the third inning. So that's not a good start. So now you got the top of the lineup and Steve Sachs, who has a hit already. And Gooden hits him on the forearm, just grazes him, barely hits him, but he hits him. So now it's first and second, two outs. So Gooden's in trouble. And um, it's interesting when they show the replay of the um, Gooden hitting Sachs. And the guys in the, bo the guys in the booth are talking about how great it is that they have like this slow motion replay where you can see it. They're marveling. Oh, wow, it's so great. We can do this. We have this technology. This is clearly 1988, right? <laughs> you know, talking about how cool it is to have a slow motion replay. Um, you know, nowadays, obviously, you have so much more. So now Franklin Stubbs is up. First and second, nobody out. Is he going to bunt? 
And Stubbs tries to munt, but he fouls on a long first base. And McCarver points out that with the lefty pull hitter up, Hernandez can't charge from first. So that's a good point. Her, McCarver's really on his game here. He's so good. And he talks about how um, with the lefty up, and he's a pull hitter, so Hernandez can't charge. He has to stay back because if he decides to swing away, he's going to hit one right over his head. So he can't charge. So because of that, Stubbs can bunt to first or to third. Um, he tries to bunt another one, also bunts it foul, and the L.A. crowd starts to boo him a little bit. So apparently Franklin Stubbs had an interesting relationship with this, these L.A. fans because they thought that he played kind of, and these are Al Michaels' words, that he looks as if he plays in a lackadaisical fashion. And you can kind of see it, you know, he kind of waves at pitches. And you know, I, I don't know, I, I'm not going to accuse the guy of not playing hard, but he kind of did have this, eh, you know, kind of way about him that seemed like he could be doing better than he was doing. And for an L.A. crowd, I mean, can you imagine if this guy played in New York? I mean, for an L.A. crowd to give you a hard time over something like that, it really has to be evident. So anyway, he ends up striking out on a bad swing. So now there's one out. So Franklin Stubbs, um, he's out, and Kirk Gibson's up. So one out, still first and second. And Gooden falls behind Kirk Gibson, three and one. He catches the corner as um, Gibson's about to go to first base. He thinks he walks, but the umpire calls it a strike. So now that's three and two. So now here's another interesting analysis by McCarver. Gibson has struck out 19 times, as you saw, out of 36 at-bats. So I don't imagine with Hershiser at second base, as you see the fastball just get the corner, I don't imagine Tommy Lasorda will send the runners here. He doesn't, and Gibson strikes out on a breaking pitch. How about that? <laughs> How about that? He says he strikes out a lot, so I don't think that Tommy Lasorda is going to send the runners. Lasorda doesn't send the runners, and Gibson strikes out. How good is McCarver right there? So that's two outs. All right. So Mike Marshall's up next, and he chases a breaking ball outside and low for strike three. So he ends up striking out. So Gooden gets out of it. Pretty good. First and second, nobody out. Walks the pitcher, hits the next guy, and gets out of it. Pretty good job by Gooden there. So we go to the top of the fourth, and Keith Hernandez is up. He strikes out looking quickly. He doesn't like the call, but he's out. So that's one out. So now Daryl Strawberry comes up, and they talk a little bit about MVP. So now, as I said, Daryl Strawberry was one of the few Mets who was really playing well in the midst of that season. And the question was, was he going to win the MVP? He basically carried the Mets for those two bad months. It would have been a lot worse had it not been for the fact that Strawberry was playing as well as he was. Um, Al Michaels mentions Kirk Gibson as a possibility. He mentions Oral Hershiser as another possibility. And for those who know, you know, and for those who don't know, you're about to know, Gibson ended up winning the award for MVP, which is understandable. Gibson had less to work with. He really did... Um, provide um, a really major spark for this Dodger team. But Strawberry could have easily won it as well. I mean, he had an amazing season in 1988. Um, he ends up grounding out to first. Hershiser um, goes over to cover the bag, and they throw him out. And then McReynolds grounds out too. So Hershiser is locked in. His scoreless streak continues, even though, like I said, it doesn't count in the playoffs, but he's still not giving anything up. Bottom of the fourth. So now it's Gooden's turn on the mound. John Shelby's up. He flies out to right. And the fans in right field are starting to give it to Daryl Strawberry a little bit. Strawberry catches the fly ball, and they're chanting the Daryl trap. The Daryl. They're giving that to him a little bit out there in right field. These L.A. fans are getting into it. Good job by them. Okay, so Mike Sosha's up next. As the guys in the booth, they start to talk about Dwight Gooden, and they start to talk about his decline. Now, this is an interesting subject. Um, Dwight Gooden came up in 1984. He was 19 years old. He had a huge rookie season. And he won Rookie of the Year. The next year, 1985, he had a huge season for anybody, and he won the Cy Young. And so after that, 
you know, 86, he had a decent season. 87, not as good. 88, he had a good season. And the guys are talking about his quote-unquote decline. And, you know, when you have a monster rookie season and then you have a Cy Young season your next year, I thought about this. Now, I, I, full disclosure, I wasn't really watching baseball in 1984 and 85. I was very small and I didn't know anything about it. I really didn't start getting into baseball until, you know, 87, 88. You know, really, that's when I really got into it. But, um, when I, for just from what I know of, it's like when somebody has seasons like that early on, I guess it's understandable you'd expect huge seasons from them every year. And we did have great pitchers in the past who would just put together great seasons year after year after year. But at the same time, when somebody has a season like that with like a 174 ERA, which I think Gooden had in 1985, something like that. And then the next year he has like a two something ERA. It's kind of hard to call it a decline. You know, you have to understand that guys aren't going to be perfect and it's a lot of pressure to put on somebody to be that good so that's just my take on it anyway um the rest of this inning there isn't really a whole lot that happens the Dodgers end up going down um you know they don't score anything and so we go to the top of the fifth so we go to the top of the fifth inning and it starts out with showing Magic Johnson in the stands and it's interesting to me seeing that because when you watch a Dodger game now especially a big one who's in the stands always Magic Johnson, he's always there. I think he's still part owner of the Dodgers. But it's interesting, going all the way back to 1988, there was Magic right there on the scene. And they actually talk about it. You know, Al Michaels comments, how many sporting events have we seen Magic at over the, Magic at over the last few weeks? They've seen him at Michigan State games where he went. They've seen him at Los Angeles Raiders games. And he's got training camp coming up in a couple weeks with the Lakers. So I, I thought that was kind of cool. Like just thinking all the way back then, Magic was always right there on the scene. And now, still out there all the time. So um, Howard Johnson's the leadoff batter in the top of the fifth. He flies out to center field. They play a taped interview of um, Davey Johnson. So they talk about Davey Johnson. Davey Johnson is the manager of the Mets. I haven't talked about the managers yet, but we'll talk about Tommy Lasorda in a minute, actually. Tommy Lasorda, of course, is the manager of the Dodgers. Davey Johnson is the manager of the Mets. He'd been manager since 1984. All those seasons that they'd had, as I mentioned, where they finished either first or second, and they won the World Series in 1986, he'd been manager for that. But Davey Johnson did not have a contract um, going into the next season. And it was not 100% sure that he was going to be back. He was not signed to be back for the 1989 season. And so they talked to him about it before the game. They played a part of a recorded interview with him where they talked to him about whether or not he expected to be back. And um, Davey said he expected to be back, even though he said anything can change. Obviously, if this series doesn't go well, that could change. But um, he just wasn't sure if, um, you know, he said that he overall expected to be back. So um, as they're doing this, they show Gary Carter and he hits a ground ball out. So that's one out quickly. And they go back to the booth and the guys are talking about the interview with Davey Johnson and a couple of interesting little quips there. Backman, and yesterday I know I had talked to Davey about what had happened in New York on Sunday. It didn't get a lot of play, but he was in the dugout and they'd arranged it. Mets management and the coaching staff knew about it. They sent him to the mound to talk to Randy Myers in the ninth inning. It was a plant. Because up on the message board, they put up that information about he being the first to win 90 of the National League. And he got a standing ovation at Shea, and he was very touched by it. He'd be even more touched by a three-year contract. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, the difference between resign and resign is a hyphen. <laughs> I thought that was cute, those comments those guys made. So, yeah, they're talking about a moment where um, they put up a, um, something about Davey Johnson at Shea Stadium a few nights earlier during the regular season that um, 
he was the first manager in National League history to win 90 or more games in his first five seasons, and he got a standing ovation. So that showed the Mets fans love Davey, at least from what I remember. The Mets fans really liked Davey, and he ended up managing through the 1989 season and was fired during the 1990 season. And most managers do get fired, so you can't really you know, blame the Mets too much for that. He'd been there for a while, and they kind of underperformed in 1989, and in 1990 they were... From what I remember, obviously they weren't up to a great start if they fired him. But um, you know, could they have given him a little bit more time? Could they? Could he? Have, they have possibly done better if they kept him as a manager. He ended up managing for other teams and being successful well into the '90s. And he actually managed all the way up until um, I think 2013. He had taken a break from managing, and then later on in life got a call and managed the Nationals and actually was a decent manager for them in the early um, 2010s. And um, Davey's still doing well now, and uh, an interesting interview if you can catch him anywhere um, on podcasts. But anyway, um, Wally Blackman flies out, and that ending is over, but that was really just notable about Davey Johnson. So we go to the bottom of the fifth. Oral Hershiser leads off. He strikes out trying to bunt, apparently um, having decided that he's not going to be able to hit Gooden, so he <laughs> goes ahead and tries to bunt. Both these pitches are really locked in. They're putting in a clinic. And um, Hershiser apparently has decided he's not going to hit Gooden that well, so he tries to bunt. He doesn't do that well either, and he ends up striking out. So Steve Stacks, he's up next. He helped the Dodgers get their only run and the only run of the game with his speed. And my, Al Michaels comments that that's the only way the Dodgers are going to win this series, by using speed and defense. And then um, then there's a moment in this game that I didn't like, that I was uncomfortable with. Um, there's a shot of Tommy Lasorda in the dugout. There's um, no one man, one man out, nobody on. And they catch Tommy in the dugout, and he's yawning. And um, this leads to kind of a poor-tasting comment that Jim Palmer makes. It's kind of a repeat. He repeats somebody else's comment um, from somebody. I don't know who this individual was. But apparently he says that, um, you know, possibly the reason why Tommy Lasorda is yawning is because he's usually having a bowl of pasta at this time. And then he says, now, Tommy Lasorda at this point is heavy. You know, I, you may remember Tommy Lasorda kind of being up and down with his weight during the course of his managerial tenure. And Tommy Lasorda at this point is heavy. He's he's wearing he's got a lot of weight going. And um Palmer repeats this comment that somebody said about Tommy looking like he's been on anabolic pasta. And um, I think that's kind of lame. You know, the, the, the guys, you know, he kind of giggles about it. And then Al Michaels says something like, yeah, right. It's a new dish or something like that. Tim McCarver doesn't say anything. McCarver's a Southern gentleman. I get the feeling he doesn't like any of this. Um, but I just that was a moment that doesn't really age well. Sachs ends up striking out swinging. And that's Gooden's seventh strikeout. So um, just spoiler alert, Gooden goes on a strikeout binge right here. Franklin Stubbs is up next. He's already struck out twice, and he grounds out to Backman. So that's the end of that inning. So we go to the top of the six. Gooden leads off, and they contrast his regular season to date with his postseason to date. Regular season, I'm talking about his career. Regular season, he's 91 and 35 with a 722 winning percentage, which you will never see anybody with that many wins and that kind of winning percentage nowadays. Um, 91 wins in how many seasons is this for Gooden? I think it's sixth season or something like that. And 91 wins, you'll never see that nowadays. But in his postseason, he is 0-3 with a 346 ERA. But McCarver, who called a lot of those postseason games in 1986 against the Astros, notes that he actually was good in the postseason against the Astros in 1986. He was very bad in the World Series against the Red Sox. But his postseason starts against the Astros were actually very good. So Gooden strikes out. And Al Michaels um, notes that Gooden is pitching pretty well, 
but unfortunately somebody else is pitching a little bit better. And of course that person is Hershiser. Jim Palmer expresses tremendous admiration, his words, for what Gooden went through last year. The year before, last year, 87, was, was when Gooden had to deal with a suspension because of drug use. And Palmer mentions that he has tremendous admiration for him um, coming back from what he went through at that time. I wonder if somebody said something to Palmer about that comment about Lasorda between innings. And uh, But he says something nice about um, Gooden there, so that's good. So Mookie Wilson's up next, and he quickly grounds out to Alfredo Griffin at short. Mookie's swinging very early in the at-bats against Hershiser, who seems to be dominating him. So he, Mookie should really be taking more pitches. Um, Greg Jeffries is up next. And Michaels talks about Jeffries. He grew up in Northern California, but he grew up a Dodgers fan, not a Giants fan, even though he grew up in Northern California, that he and his dad would fly down for games. And um, he hits a single to right field. That's his second hit, and the Mets fourth. So we're in the second inning. Mets have four hits, no runs. And Keith Hernandez is up. He rips a single to center field. Jeffries was running on contact. He goes to third. Um, the ball was hit pretty hard. Now, is that a, is that a smart play? Daryl Strawberry is up next. There's two outs. You're on first base. Keith Hernandez gets a hit, and you try to stretch it over to third. I don't know if that's a smart play with Daryl Strawberry up next. But um, he makes it to third anyway, uncontested. And Strawberry, who's 0 for 2, hits a grounder to Stubbs at first base, who just steps on the bag. So no runs there for the Mets. So we go to the bottom of the sixth. The Mets, um, the guys in the booth are talking about an interesting article that had been in the papers in the L.A. Times leading up to this game. And it was about Daryl Strawberry, who's leading off, <clears throat> or who made the last out in that inning. Um, so they show Straw out there in right field. And it's an interesting article where Daryl Strawberry talked about the fact that um, he'd like to play for the Dodgers at some point. Um, he's an L.A. native. And it's kind of an interesting thing for him to bring that up when his team, the Mets, is about to play a playoff series against the Dodgers. So um, they play a little taped interview of Strawberry talking about this. In a big prominent story in the Los Angeles Times this morning, headline, Darryl as a Dodger, Ross Newhan of the Times talks about Strawberry. Darryl contending he'd like to play with the Dodgers after 1990, and he talked about it before the game. Well, it's always a dream that any kid when you're growing up and you know, being in your own hometown, coming back, like I said, for the national championship play, and then knowing that you might have an opportunity when your years are up with the organization that you're with, and if the opportunity is right and it's fitted for me, then you make the decisions then. But, you know, you're not trying to make any decisions at this particular point. Are you necessarily closing the door on the Mets in the far distant future? No, I'm not. Not at all. Um, I've had a long uh, relationship in New York, and you know, it's been outstanding. I feel good about it. But there's been a lot of rough times, too, there. And, you know, you just say to yourself, um, when it comes to that time, are you ready to make a decision on whether you're going to play here or you're going to play there? So I really haven't came to any point in my mind right now, but I'm still thankful, considering that L.A. would be one of my favorite places to play. So it's interesting. When, um, when Al Michaels asked him if he was closing the door on playing for the Mets after 1990, Straw smiled right away and he said, no, 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 I'm not, you know, I'm not closing the door on that. Um, so he, he at least was smart enough to know that, um, you know, you don't want to go as far as to say, oh, I'm definitely not coming back to the Mets or everything. He's still got to play there in 1989 and 1990. He's still got two more years before he reaches free agency. And they talk about whether or not this would be a distraction to the team. Now, remember, um, Tim McCarver is around the Mets all season. He's an analyst for the Mets during the regular season. He says, no, it wouldn't be a distraction. They kind of know who Daryl is by now. They even talked to Lee Mazzilli, one of the veterans on the Mets, who specifically just kind of shrugged his shoulders when they asked him about it and said, well, that's Daryl. You know, and the guys kind of know him. That's just how he is. You know, he says things like that. And um, that's just how he is. 
And um, meanwhile, Dwight, Dwight Gooden strikes out Kirk Gibson looking. That's eight strikeouts for Gooden. And um, they go back to talking about Straw. And um, apparently, Al Michaels mentions that Straw talked. Straw said something about Eric Davis, who was his buddy growing up in Los Angeles and who's playing for the Reds at this point, and about the two of them getting together. And that's kind of interesting because isn't that kind of like what happens in the NBA now when you think about you know, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and guys like that talking about getting together and stuff and eventually getting together. But in those days, in baseball, that certainly was not really very heard of. You know, that was something you didn't hear about or anything. And eventually... For the future, Strawberry did end up signing with the Dodgers after the 1990 season. He joined them in 1991, and his friend Eric Davis did get together with him there and sign there after the 91 series. They played together there in 1992. So they actually did get together and play for the Dodgers, but it didn't go well. Um, Mike Marshall's up next. He strikes out looking. He's frozen on a fastball in the outside corner. So Gooden's locked in. That's nine strikeouts now. And John Shelby's next. Gooden's still throwing in the 90s. We are in the bottom of the sixth inning, and Gooden's throwing in the 90s. One pitch is clocked at 96 miles an hour, and Shelby's just waving at pitches. I mean, he's got no chance here. He strikes out on a check swing, and that's um, the 10th strikeout for Gooden. So Gooden strikes out the side there. So now we go to the top of the seventh. Kevin McReynolds is up. He pops up to um, Alfredo Griffin at short. So that's a quick out. Howard Johnson makes a quick out. Um, They talk about how... Hershiser's throwing curveballs on 1-0. Hershiser's locked into, and um, he's throwing curveballs on 1-0. He's not afraid to do that. And right when they talk about it, he does it to Howard Johnson. And Howard Johnson ends up grounding out to second base, so that's two quick outs. Gary Carter strikes out on a check swing. He doesn't like the call, but he's gone. And it's another 1-2-3 inning for Hershiser. So we go to the bottom of the seventh. And Mike Socha's up against Gooden. He hits a rocket down the right field line for a double. So Gooden gets touched there. Jeff Hamilton's up next. He's expected to bunt. But instead, he swings and hits a weak grounder to the first base where Hernandez is in. He tags him, but that gets um, Socha over to third. So it's as good as a sacrifice, even though it doesn't count as a sacrifice. So Socha's at third, one out, and Alfredo Griffin's up. And are they going to try a squeeze play? That's the question. Socha's on third, and there's only one out. It gets to 0-2, no bun attempts by Griffin, so he's swinging away, so no squeeze play. And he ends up hitting a double over the drawn-in infield. Backman's way in at second base. Everybody's drawn way in, expecting that possible bun or that squeeze play. And so Lasorda plays it well. He decides not to bunt. He lets him swing away. He hits one over Backman's head at second base. It's a single, and um, Socha scores easily, so it's 2-0 Dodgers. So now Hershiser's up to bat, and there's a man on first. So now he's up to bunt with Griffin on first and one out. And... Um, Griffin takes off before Hershiser can bunt. Carter throws him out. It ends up being, he, he throws, he kind of gets a little lucky here because it's not a good slide by Griffin. So he's out. So that's the second out. And now the bases are empty and Hershiser ends up grounding out to shortstop. So that's the end of that inning. But now the Dodgers are up 2 nothing, And we go to the top of the eighth. So Mets are down to their last six outs. They're down 2 nothing. Wally Backman's up and he hits some, um, I'm sorry, Wally Backman strikes out looking on a backdoor slider. He doesn't like the call, but he's out. Now they bring up Len Dykstra to replace Gooden. So now Gooden's out of the game. They bring up Len Dykstra to pinch hit for him. Randy Myers is up in the bullpen, throwing. Um, Dykstra draws a walk, slams down the bat, runs to first base, so that Len Dykstra kind of energy. Len Dykstra was an interesting player for the Mets in the 80s. Um, he was there until 1989 when he was traded to the Phillies. And um, he was a spark plug. He was a fiery player, but he was somebody who the manager, Davey Johnson, didn't think was an everyday player. And as I mentioned, at this season, at this point, he basically was relegated to the bench. And Mookie Wilson was starting most of the games in center field. And um, But Dykstra draws a walk here. He sprints to first base. And Mookie comes up. 
And what does he do again? Swinging very early in the count. He hits a double play. Actually, it's the first pitch. He hits into a double play. It's like, oh, Mookie, come on. Take a pitch. You're not hitting this guy very well. Anyway, he hits into that double play. And um, that's the end of the inning. So we go to the bottom of the eighth. Still 2 nothing Dodgers. Randy Myers is up. Uh, Randy Myers is the new pitcher, excuse me, for the Mets. Hard-throwing pitcher. Something like a closer in an era where closers weren't as um, prominent as they are now. And um, Steve Sachs is up, and he quickly grounds out to the shortstop, Howard Johnson. So that's one out. Len Dykstra stayed in the game. He replaced Mookie Wilson and left. Mookie just, you know, <laughs> not a good game for Mookie at the plate. Although he did have a hit. But um, overall, Mookie didn't, you know, swing too early in the count. Come on, Mook. Um, Tracy Woodman, Woodson comes up to pinch it for Franklin Stubbs, the aforementioned, quote-unquote, lackadaisical Franklin Stubbs. Um, with um, the lefty Randy Myers in the game now, they bring in Tracy Woodson to um, pinch hit for Stubbs. Tracy Woodson's righty. And um, he hits a foul fly along the right field line that Hernandez goes a long way to get, but he gets it. And then Kirk Gibson comes up, and he's trying to bunt. <laughs> and the guys in the booth are like, why is he bunting? He can't run. What? I don't understand this. But for some reason, he tries to lay down a bunt. It doesn't work. Um, he ends up hitting a pop-up. He swings away later on, hits a pop-up along the third baseline. Jeffries goes flying after it. He um, ends up making the catch and then flying into the Dodger dugout on the third baseline. The Dodgers are the home team is actually along the third baseline at Dodger Stadium. And the Dodgers dugout is there. And um, he makes this catch and then goes flying into that dugout. And it's interesting, the point that um, Tim McCarver makes, the Dodgers can't help him. The Dodgers can't brace him for before he catches the ball, because if they brace him and he doesn't catch it, Gibson's automatically out. So they can't touch him until he actually catches the ball. So he does catch it, and then they are nice enough to actually reach out and catch him so he doesn't end up hurting himself. But they can't actually brace him or catch him before he does because if so, he doesn't catch it, and it's interference, and Gibson's automatically out. That's something I actually didn't know, but that's McCarver because he knows everything. So we go to the top of the ninth, and Greg Jeffries is leading off against Oral Hershiser. It's the ninth inning. Oral Hershiser has thrown 90 pitches. Let me say that again. It's the ninth inning. Oral Hershiser is still in the game. He has thrown 90 pitches. He's given up no runs. This is a remarkable performance by Hershiser. But Jeffries gets to him again. He gets another single. That's his third hit off of Hershiser tonight. So he has hit him well. So Keith Hernandez is up next. The Mets, they show the Mets in the dugout. They have their rally caps going. They got the hats backwards and everything like that. They got the rally caps. They're, they're, they're trying to will their team to something, but they're down 2 nothing. And they got Gre- Jeffries at first. And um, he's running, and Keith hits a grounder to the first base. Tracy Woodson, who's playing first base now, steps on first base to get Keith Hernandez. But Greg Jeffries doesn't realize it's a grounder. He thinks it's a liner. So he thinks he's going to be out. So he's about to just walk back because he thinks that, that when Woodson stepped on first base, he's out. He doesn't realize that it was a grounder, and Hernandez is out. So apparently one of the coaches tells him to hurry up and go back to first base, to go back to second base. But before that, Alfredo Griffin is standing behind him and he's screaming for the ball. He's like, give me the ball, give me the ball. Because her, um, excuse me, Jeffries doesn't realize that he's not out and he's about to walk. He's off the bag and he's about to just walk off the field because he thinks he's out. And if someone can throw Alfredo Griffin the ball, he can tag him and then he will really be out. And then it'll be an actual double play and it would have been a huge goof, a huge mess up by Jeffries. But apparently one of the coaches told him he goes back to second base. Nobody threw the ball to Alfredo Griffin. And as the guys in the booth point out, Griffin's not going to tell him that it's not a line drive. Griffin is going to try and trick him and get somebody to throw him the ball so he can tag him out. But nobody caught it. Nobody on the Dodgers side caught it. And luckily for Jeffries, 
he gets to second base before anybody can throw the ball there. So Jeffries is on second. There's one out. He would have been a huge GOAT, but instead he gets to stay at second base. And Daryl Strawberry is up next. So here's Daryl Strawberry, man on second, one out. The future Dodger, the wannabe Dodger, the Darryl, you know, this Daryl Strawberry, he's up and it's his chance. And guess what? They leave Oral Hershiser in the game with Daryl Strawberry up at bat, who's lefty. Hershiser's righty. It's the ninth inning. He's thrown over 90 pitches. First base is open. And they leave him in and let him face Strawberry. I love old baseball. If this was nowadays, he'd never be in the game. But not only that, in this point, at this point in the game, they still leave him in. So first base open. They pitch the Strawberry. They show the Mets in the dugout. Almost every one of them is wearing that rally hat, that hat on backwards. So Straw hits one in the gap between center field and right field. There is nobody there. This is clear. This is just no doubt it's going to be a double for Straw. Um, Jeffrey scores easily. He can run. Straw goes to second. Now it's 2-1 to one Dodgers. First Met run. Then you have this convergence of beautiful white and blue uniforms over on the mound. The whole infield comes in. The catcher, Mike Sosha, comes out to talk to Hershiser. And eventually the pitching coach comes out and the decision's been made. And Hershiser is coming out of the game. So I thought that was just a nice moment, um, that ovation that he got, the organ music and everything like that. He's walking off of the mound. He's clearly pissed off. He wanted to finish this game. You can just look on his face. He is not happy. But he's out of there. He pitched an amazing game. He had an amazing season. Um, you know, I didn't talk about some of the things they brought up during the course of this game with Oral Hershiser. They talk about the fact that he likes hockey. He likes to play hockey. They talk about the fact that he looks like a Yale student, but he actually was not a very good student. His nickname is Bulldog because um, Tom Lasorda called him Bulldog for whatever reason. Just thought he looked like the opposite of that. But he really does have that personality. He's a tough guy. Um, he's a Christian man, a very, very religious man, very strong on his faith, um, a tough man. And he kind of looks like a professor, but he doesn't really have that personality. And um, just had an amazing season that year and ended up winning the Cy Young. So anyway, he's out of the game now. And the new pitcher is going to be Jay Howell. Jay Howell is the new pitcher. And Kevin McReynolds is up. Jay Howell is a right. Jay Howell is a righty. Kevin McReynolds is righty. And Kevin McReynolds draws a walk. So now it's men on first and second. And one out, and Howard Johnson comes up. Howard Johnson's 0 for 3, but now he's hitting on his left side, which is better. Now, see, this is what could have happened. And this, if this was modern baseball, they probably would have pulled Jay Howell. Actually, no, you can't even do that now because everybody has to face three batters. But if this was before 2020, um, but modern, they would have pulled Jay Howell and brought in Jesse Orozco. Maybe. But here's the interesting thing. Jesse Orozco is on the Dodgers, but this shows you that they could have brought him in here, but they don't really trust him. Even though he's lefty, this would have turned Howard Johnson to his right side where he's weaker. But this shows you how much, and the, and the announcers talk about this, they don't really trust Jesse Orozco. They don't see him as a closer at this point in his career. They don't see him as the person they want to finish this. They want, <clears throat> they want Jay Howell to finish this. He's their guy, and they trust him. And it's um, Jim Palmer that makes that analysis. And as a former pitcher, he would know. So Hojo comes up, and um, they're trusting him. 
and he ends up striking out on a curveball. Um, he never gets a fastball on this at bat, so he ends up striking out. So now that's two outs, men on first and second. Dodgers are still up two to one, and the Mets are down to their last at bat, and it's Gary Carter. Now, Gary Carter has been down this road before with the Mets. He came up with the Mets down to their last at bat in game six of the 1986 World Series, and he got a huge single that started a rally that ended up bringing them back to win that game. So as Gary Carter's coming up to bat here, remember, first and second, and two men out, and the Mets are down two to one, Tim McCarver makes this very interesting analysis. And Davey Johnson looks on as Carter gets ready to come to the plate after Sosha confers with Howell. You could understand why the outfield was deep with Strawberry hitting. I can't understand why the outfield is this deep with Gary Carter hitting. They're playing deep because they're defending against the Gary Carter of five years ago and his reputation, not this year. Tim McCarver, as usual, is on it. Now, Tim McCarver used to comment a lot during the Met games about the Mets outfield playing deep. And he talked a lot during the course of his announcing career about outfields being deep and everything like that. But this is a very interesting analysis. He's talking about the fact that this outfield is playing very deep as if Daryl Strawberry is up at bat. But it's Gary Carter up at bat. And this is 1988 Gary Carter, who is not the same thing as 1985 or 1983 or 1981 Gary Carter when he was an all-star with the Expos and his first couple of years with the Mets. He doesn't have that kind of power anymore. But they're still playing him very deep. The count goes all the way to 0-2, and then this happens. Line to center field, and with the outfield deep, Shelby can't make the catch as Strawberry comes in to score. And McReynolds is being waved in, and the throw to Sosha. Sosha blocks the play, but without the ball, and McReynolds is saved. And with the Dodger outfield deep for Carter, it costs him. As Shelby just falls short of coming up with it. Amazing. Another great job by McCarver. The outfield was way too deep. That was a fly ball that would have been a routine fly ball out. Jeff Shelby would have only had to come in a little bit in center field. He would have snagged it, and the Dodgers would have won this game 2-1. to one. But because they were so deep, he had to come in and dive for it. He couldn't get it. Strawberry scored easily. McReynolds came around, third base. Sosha was blocking the plate. The ball never even got to Sosha, but in those days, the catcher could block the play, and he was up the line. McReynolds levels him. I mean, he runs over him like it's a like he's a linebacker just running over a running back or something like that. Completely shoulder checks him. Sosha never even had the ball. McReynolds scores. The Mets take the lead 3-2. to two. Carver called it exactly. They were playing way too deep, and because of that, Carter gets this hit, and it's another big hit for Carver for Carter for his Met career in a big playoff situation down to their last out. This one, unlike in Game 6 of 1986, is a little bit lucky. This should have been an out. But because the outfield was playing so deep, they were able to um, – the ball ends up dropping in front of Shelby or he tries to dive and he can't get it. And it ends up being a hit. It ends up being two runs for the Mets. And they go up three games to two. I'm sorry, three, and, three to two. <laughs> Not three games to two. But they go up three to two in this game. So McCarver called it again. So next, Wally Backman's up. He grounds out. The inning is over, but the damage is done. And we go to the top of the, we go to the bottom of the ninth. The Dodgers have their last chance. Mike Marshall's up. Randy Myers is still in, and um, Kevin Elster's in at short for the Mets. And um, so anyhow, what goes on is um, the Dodgers end up going out pretty quickly in this um, inning. One, two, three. Um, 
Mike Marshall lines out to Kevin Elster in the first out for the first out. The air is completely out of Dodger Stadium. I mean, it is completely let out. Um, John Shelby grounds out to second base. Randy Myers is running to first for some reason. Hernandez kind of checks him, and you know he makes the out, and then he says, what are you doing over here? Myers was apparently just really pumped up. I don't know. And then Rick Dempsey comes up to pinch it for Sosha, which is interesting. Dempsey's a righty. Um, but Sosha, um, you got to wonder if maybe Mike Sosha is um, maybe shaken up after that collision. So anyway, um, I think I mentioned earlier in this podcast that Randy Myers is a righty. He's not. I mean, Randy Myers was a lefty. He's not. Randy Myers is a righty. And he ended up um, finishing off this game. Rick Dempsey um, pops up to Wally Backman. And that's the end of it. The Mets end up winning the game. Sorry about that. Uh, Randy Myers is a lefty. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> made a mistake there. No, I was right before. Randy Myers was a lefty. And uh, Rick Dempsey was a righty, so he was the pinch hitter for Sosha. But you got to wonder if maybe Sosha was shaken up in that collision with um, with with um, Kevin McReynolds at home plate. Anyhow, that was this game. The Mets came back in the third inning. It was a pitching clinic. It was Gooden versus Hershiser. It was a beautiful night at Dodger Stadium, a beautiful twilight that turned into nightfall. And um, it was just a well-played game. It was very crisp. And the Mets end up coming back and winning. This is game one of the series. This is only game one. And next time we're going to do another game that is later on in this series. And we're going to talk about um, just some other moments in this series as well. So we are going to do another game in this series coming up. But we hope you enjoyed this. I enjoyed this. I enjoyed reminiscing and looking back. I enjoyed going over some of these this game, these players, this amazing performance by Hershiser, this great performance by Dwight Gooden also, this um, great showing of pitching. And um, we're going to do another one coming up pretty soon. So over the, fe- over the Fence Podcast, we're out for now.